Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. What a great way to be able to dive into God's word by declaring his greatness and his goodness. Would you just bow your heads with me and we're going to pray that God would continue to work in our hearts. Dear Father in heaven, praise be your name and forgive us, Lord, when we're not that concerned about your name. Such a blessing to have redemption in Jesus. It's just such a joy. Our relationships would be further broken. Our expectations would be further disappointing. All of our human efforts are just absolutely rubbish when we think of the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ in order to help us have eternity with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn to Acts chapter 16? Forgive me for using a music stand this morning, but this is what I use at my church. And uh, you've uh, raised this pulpit since the last time I was here <laughs> because Paul is just ridiculously tall and I'm ridiculously short, so that's just not going to happen. There's a French novel written in 1859 by Charles Dickens about London and Paris called A Tale of Two Cities. Have any of you ever read A Tale of Two Cities? Okay, a few of, oh, more hands in this service than the other service. So even though you're the sinful people who have to sleep in and come late to church <laughs> and apparently sit very far back, uh, more educated, that's good. I made my son read uh, Tale of Two Cities this year. We we're homeschooling for high school, and he promised me that if I ever made him read a book like it again, he would leave by the time he was 16. But it has a really wonderful and amazing opening that I'd like to share with you. It says this, It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolish, foolishness. It was the period of belief, and it was the period of unbelief. It was the season of light and the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, but we had nothing before us. We were all going directly to heaven and at the same time we were all going directly the other way written about two cities london and paris at the brink of the french revolution and i think these words so aptly describe the fragility of any hope in any type of city citizenship. If we look at the great city of Toronto, or we look at the great cities of our world today, there is always around and permeated through those cities great hope and expectation that some type of revolution or, or, or advancement will bring significant wealth and prosperity and protection for its citizens. This is why people immigrate 
to Canada. This is why uh, Toronto is acclaimed to be a beautiful, multi-ethnic, welcoming city because there's this wonderful anticipation of what it might be like, what it could be like to be a citizen of this nation. And at the same time, there is always right underneath that foundation this realization, this significant observation that the city sits on a pocket of air. And any moment it could just crumble into its own foundations and evaporate. When we think of a man driving down a street beside Willowdale Baptist Church, one of our partner churches, and driving down ten women. When we think of them finding yet more body remains in some guy's backyard, we realize that this vision, this beautiful city vision, is just on the brink always of completely collapsing. And so this morning I would like us to do a little bit of a study of a city we're familiar with and what the Apostle Paul has to say to that city, the city of Philippi. If you would turn to Acts chapter 16, we're going to start reading together in verse 6. This is what the scriptures say and describe about Paul's journey as it was leading up to going to Philippi. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, they came to the border of Mycenae and they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got up at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrake. And the next day, on to Neapolis. And there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Now, if you don't know your European geography, it's pretty simple. Mediterranean Sea... The Aegean Sea shoots up like this, and on one side is Asia Minor. I'm, I'm using your perspective. Asia Minor's here. And on the other side, you're starting to get into Greece and Athens and, and Macedonia. So all Paul had to do was go around the top of the Aegean Sea, not very far, in order to, instead of going further into Asia, turning the other way and going further into Europe. And what he did... Uh, was being led by the Holy Spirit. We see here early in the text that um, Luke describes the Holy Spirit's work in a negative way. The Holy Spirit was holding them back from going. And he also uses another phrase to describe the, the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit in one sentence, and in the very next ses- sentence he says, the Spirit of Jesus held us back. And so this is, Luke, helping us understand the Holy Spirit's role in the expansion of God's kingdom, whereby the Holy Spirit, the one sent by Jesus, 
who is very one with Christ, his spirit, the spirit is leading them in a way to obey Christ. Now, I don't know about how God leads in your life, but let me give you an example of the Holy Spirit redirecting our paths, holding us back. My wife and I had picked up, we were living in the Barrie area, we had picked up and we moved our two young boys at the time. Now we have four children, but then we only had two. Our two young boys to Mozambique, Africa. And we had decided to go to Africa. We had made, I I don't want to say lifelong plans, but our anticipation would be that we would be there. We would be there for 10 or 15 years. A year into our ministry there, right after we had overcome our homesickness and I was just starting to get my head around Portuguese in a proficient way, our second son, Gabriel, was diagnosed with cancer. And it was an aggressive, and he was already at stage two, and every Mozambican we knew and South African we knew said, please don't have him treated here. Go to Canada. And of course, we knew about Toronto Hospital for Sick Children, and it took us one phone call, and they said, the moment you land, he will be admitted. There will be no wait. You will be right in. So our life changed in that moment, and not only did we have to return for a time, but I can remember it, and the way I described it to the earlier service was, I can remember this as if one of my closest and best friends tapped me on the shoulder and said something to me. But we were walking out of Pearson International. The doors opened to go into the car garage and the cold February winds blew in as hard as you could possibly imagine. I had just stepped out of Mozambique where we were like in the mid-40s. My wife was like, live, like she had finally moved home. You know, no winters, beautiful heat. And we, t- we, we come back and the cold wind of Canadian February hits me. And it was as if one of my best friends tapped me on the shoulder and just this sentence came to me, Mike, you've got to stay in Canada now because Canada is as spiritually cold as Africa is spiritually warm. You know, not audible, but I was completely released in that moment. And we went on a year journey where I was... We were working with Gabriel, and he's fine now, by the way, and Sarah feeling like, are we, are we sure we're not called back? And So the Holy Spirit redirects us to very important places in our life in very different ways, and it's clear that the Holy Spirit was leading Paul and his companions to Philippi. And what do we know of Philippi? We know that Philippi here was a Roman colony in the leading city of the district of Macedonia. I want to just talk to you a little bit about Philippi at the time when Paul was there. The history of Philippi began uh, over 300 years earlier with King Philip of Macedonia. King Philip II, actually. King Philip II was the father of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was responsible for taking Greek thought, Greek culture, Greek language, Greek economics, everything to the known world because their answer for the world was, we are the Greeks. Uh, And his passion, Alexander's passion, began with his father, Philip. And so you might hear if you were walking around Philippi at this time that the passion for the Greeks begins in Philip of Philippi. Uh, Further than that, the Romans, when they started taking over the Greek empire, 
they realized the importance of this city. And a, a significant battle was won uh, about 200 years before Paul was here, where um, Octavian and Mark Antony defeated Brutus. And there was this battle over this area between the Romans and the Greeks, and the Romans won. And when they won, then they took all of their veterans, and they took all of their resources of the military, and poured it into Philippi, and made Philippi the second Rome. You know, they had baths houses just like Rome. They had beautiful architecture just like Rome. And it might be said in their, you know, their advertisements, you know, come to Philippi. It's quainter, but it's just like Rome. Like, Philippi was a place to brag about. And you might be lolling off into sleep going, wow, this is a lot of information about Philippi. But just for a moment, think about it in a contemporary setting. I wore my football boots today because today is a very important day. Is it not a very important day? Now, these are my indoor football shoes. These are not my fluorescent, orange, beautiful cleats that I play when I play the beautiful game. And yes, my important team, England, is not in today's game. So today does not really matter all that much. But during the World Cup, we all jump into claiming our historical citizenship. Within Canada, we can't wave Canadian flags because we never get in. But we then go back to our historical roots, and I've got uh, English roots and German roots, so we cheer for England first, Germany second, and then whoever our favorite players are playing. So once Germany was out, once England was out, I was going for Belgium, but they stunk too. The point is that we are so susceptible as human beings to putting our hope in human citizenship. We, we'll like, you know, you, you see pictures at the World Cup of like people crying over the fact that their team lost. And you, you think to yourself, I hope they're at least a little drunk because that's a tad sad that they're that emotional over a football match. But I'll be the first to like run around and rip my shirt off and scream whenever England wins. We're excited about it. That is who... Paul was ministering to. In fact, Philippi was so Roman at the time that if we see here in Acts 16, when Paul enters the city, there's not even enough Jewish people who are God-fearers to have a synagogue. To have a synagogue, there was, you had to have like 10 to 12 males, Jewish males. They didn't even have enough Jewish people for Paul to go and try to evangelize the Jewish people. They had to go to a river and meet up outside the city. If we keep reading at verse 13 to 15, this is what Paul, uh, uh, this is what Luke says about what they did. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. If you couldn't have a synagogue in the city, the next best thing was to go pray by the river. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening, whose name was Lydia, a, per, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. 
If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. We, 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 just think about that. Philippi was so Roman that they, their first converts to Christianity were outside of the city because there was no establishment inside the city of Judaism. The next thing we learn about how Roman uh, Philippi was from this story is the story with Paul healing that little girl. Continuing in chapter 16, you have this story that they were in this place of prayer, that there was a slave girl there. The slave girl who had, the, who had a very strange gift of telling the future was walking around and, and actually agitating Paul by saying, you know, behold, the, the, these men have the words of God. And, and she keeps repeating it. This is what she would say. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Man, as a pastor, not going to lie, I'm confused why Paul was annoyed by that. Like, yeah, no, go ahead. Like, just keep telling, like, man of God, how to be saved. Go for it. But for some reason, there must have been some demonic stuff going on. She must have been a distraction to the ministry rather than uh, uh, than a help. Paul heals her. And what do her owners do? They know they've lost their money. And what do who do they appeal to? If we look down into verse 20, this is what they do. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. They, 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 they appeal to their Romanism. I'm a Torontonian. That is not acceptable to me. How dare they come and preach their gospel to a Torontonian? This is unacceptable of, to me. We even see the most drastic example of someone who had given their life to serving the city in the jailer. So the jailer, does everybody remember the story of the jailer? And at midnight, Paul and his companions are singing hymns and there's a great earthquake. The earthquake either throws hinges off doors or opens up new passageways and the jailer's down asleep and he hears about, he feels the earthquake and he knows he's got to go check the jail and he comes running into the jail and knowing that all of his people have escaped, he's ready to kill himself. Now let me just ask you a question and I didn't get as much response in the first service as I had hoped. So I hope I get more response out of you. But have any of you ever gone to work, recognized that a natural disaster destroyed last week's spreadsheets, and then you decided to go down to the store down the street, you know, the, with the weird guy who sells swords, and you took a sword to kill yourself. Any of you done that in the last year? Like, think about the insanity of that moment. Even if you had a very domineering Roman overseer, the, the, the captain of the jailer, I think the very best excuse would be, did you feel the earthquake last night? But this jailer is so fearful of the Roman establishment and potentially so fearful of bringing embarrassment to the Roman establishment that he's ready to kill himself because an earthquake released prisoners. And we see one of the most beautiful experiences 
of his conversion when Paul says, no, 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 we're still here. We're still sitting inside. Don't do that. And if we read, at, you know, verse 31, just skip down in your passage a little further, we, we, we read what happened, verse 27 actually. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke, spoke the word of the Lord to him and all of the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds and immediately he and his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house. He set a meal before them and he was filled with the joy, sorry, filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. All of that historical information, all of that background, all of that talk about transformation is to help us understand the book of Philippians. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he spends chapter after chapter, reminding them of their citizenship. You are no longer Philippians. You are the slaves of Christ. You are no longer putting your hope in Rome. You are putting your hope in this Christian faith. You are no longer putting and worshiping the emperor. You're no longer worshiping the Roman emperor. You have a new king. If you would, would you just flip over your Bibles to the book of Philippians, and we're going to read all four chapters. Okay. You, guys are, you, guys are, you guys give away the fact that you want to go enjoy the Sunday afternoon out on the beach. We're going to read a number of verses, and I just want you to see this theme as it goes all the way through the book of Romans. I'm going to go chrono chronologically so you can follow me along. Just starting in chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord, Master, Jesus Christ. Then verse 6, moving down, chapter 1. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You've got you to hear that phrase. Going on to verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless. Can you read that phrase without me? Until the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Going to chapter 2, verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and underneath the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Moving on to verse 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. In that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. 
And finally, everything along this theme of Christ is Lord on the day of the Lord, everything culminates when he gets to chapter 3 about this theme. And in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, this is what he says. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Dear church, this morning, if I have one question for you, young or old, hip or hypocrite, cool or cold, a rock star or just a rock, I love, the, I love those. My wife would just say, honey, you're a rock. <laughs> I was waiting for another word there, dear. <laughs> Our hope is in a new king in the day of his return, and we are already citizens of his kingdom. Amen. Something that frustrated me so much about uh, our uh, previous federal elections was when every single party started using the phrase Canadian values. Drove me nuts. We ruined four good TVs just because I threw something at them. <laughs> Canadian values. I wanted to sit with Justin. I wanted to sit with uh, our previous prime minister, who apparently I can't even remember his name right now, Mr. Harper. I wanted to sit him down, and I wanted to say... Our Canadian values don't even get us into the World Cup. <laughs> what is a Canadian value? Means nothing. Each, each political party used the phrase Canadian values to say the opposite policies that the other ones were arguing for. Dear friends, we do not build our lives on Canadian values. We build our lives on our citizenship and identity that comes from one person. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? Can I get more than one amen? <laughs> you know, in, in, in Australia, when they want to encourage the preacher, they don't say amen. They say, that's right. Can I get a that's right? That's right. And I, I, I tell this, you know, every time we get to this type of transitional time in the message where we're talking about response, I'm just honest, I never got this. For my first 19 years of life, I heard about this wonderful man named Jesus. I watched my parents put their faith in him. I watched us go through ups and downs and turmoils, and my parents' faith never even wavered. And I had not stepped into Jesus' elevator and said, it's all on you. Whether we go down or up, I'm trusting you because you're a king. Christ is Lord. Everything that happens in the world is under his rule, and he's calling the church to trust him more than we trust other voices and other citizenships. Dear friends, it's either Justin or Jesus. Like, really, those are our alternatives, and I'm going with Christ. The second 
point of this passage is to watch the affection that grew in the people of God for one another because of what God had done. So Lydia hears the gospel, receives the message, and she immediately says, if you consider me a believer, come and let me host you. Come into my home. The little girl is completely transformed and she is protected for a little while by Paul. We don't know the rest of her story, but she's transformed and changed. And in my imagination, I think of the fact that if she really accepted the Lord and and was not just healed by Paul, that her affections for these men would be great. And then we see an actual perfect evidence of this in the jailer and his family. He lays a meal before them and he's full of joy because he's come to faith. And all of these affections, because of their conversion of citizenship, lead them to love the church and being partners in the gospel. And that's the other major theme of the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 verse 3 says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Each one of these individuals who had been transformed by the gospel immediately jumped in to be partners with Paul in helping other people understand and hear the good news from the first day until now. And so Paul says, I I thank the Lord all of the time for you. Go to the chapter 4 of Philippians, and he says it this way. He says, he, he in verse 10 of chapter 4, he says, I, re- I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this to criticize, for I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. And then in verse 14, he goes on to say, but yet it is good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, you Philippians know in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel that when I went into Macedonia, not one other church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. And he goes on to explain that they had sent this young man, Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus, who was loved by their community, went and gave a gift to Paul. And this church partnered with Paul. Their their conversion of citizenship brought them joy and blessing and forgiveness, which led their affections for Paul to grow. And those affections led directly into a partnership in the gospel. And I am a pastor at Grace Baptist Church up in Alliston. We like to say the best Grace Baptist Church. (laughs) And did you know that we're partners with you in the gospel? Do you know that I get the great joy? I've been in this building 20 times. I've never entered in that entrance. I've always gone in this one. I'm really glad you have that entrance. That's a better entrance. But I've been in this building lots of time, prayed with your pastors. Pastor David Daniel used to be my mentor when he was here. I thought he was a little bit crazy, tad bit mean, and I thought, I like this guy. So I asked him to be my mentor while he was here. And Paul, getting to know him and praying with him, I sat in Paul's preordination council. We're partners in the gospel. 
I grew up in Guelph, Ontario, where the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches, the national arm, has its offices. I grew up hearing stories from the staff in those offices all the time about wonderful things that were happening in Quebec and wonderful things that are happening in Vancouver and wonderful things that are happening in the Ukraine. And I, I grew up having a great affection for Feb Central or the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches because I heard the stories of what God was doing all around the world. And I am here today to invite you into a renewed, continued affection for our partnership in the gospel. Would you as a church continue to be a great sister church to our church? Would we see greater things done in Toronto because we partner together in order to help Torontonians who are educated, who are confident, a little bit elitist, they desperately need the gospel and we need to bring it to them. There are three church plants happening within our area that we are partnering in the gospel to see come into birth. Uh, we have a church plant in Brampton with a young guy named Jeremiah Thomas. He has a Sikh background and he has the passion to go out and win any uh, individual to Christ in the Brampton area, but particularly working with immigrants. We have another couple, and I think they visited this church, David and Galina Ano. He grew up in Ghana, did his medical work in Russia, converted a young Russian musician to Christ, then married her, then had six amazing, beautifully, musically gifted, talented children and ministered in the Ukraine for 24 years, and now they're called to plant a church in Vaughan. And they're planting a church in Vaughan in order to win a new generation of English-speaking, Russian-speaking, African. Like it, If you watch their family, it's like multi-ethnicity all in one area. We've got a church plant right downtown. Well, sorry. Whenever I say downtown, all I mean is south of the 401 and in between the 427 and the Danforth. So in Scarborough, more properly... A church plant in Scarborough with a guy named uh, Bemi McDeddy. And Bemi is planting in one of the poorest communities in Toronto. In fact, I visited his church plant and I kept saying, this just reminds me of Mozambique. Like, I cannot believe that this exists in Toronto. It's at 80, 90 units and it's like walking into the third world. And he's planting a church right there. The city of Toronto is giving them free space to plant a church because of the care and love that they're giving to the young people in that community. These are the types of things that we accomplish together because we change our citizenship, our affection for one another grows as Christians, and then we partner in the gospel. Acts 16 and the whole book of Philippians in 40 minutes. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Father in heaven, what a gift your word is to us. I was thinking this morning on my way down, Lord, what a gift it is just to have the examples of faithfulness and conversion and, and changing of identity right before us. Paul didn't celebrate winning thousands upon thousands. They celebrated here by winning 
two families. Dear Father in heaven, would you help us to grow in our affection for one another in this church? Would you help our affection for other churches to grow so that we might partner in the gospel? We thank you so much for the work of Jesus and that we just believe in his name and we are saved. Amen.